Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope, and uh, we just have a couple announcements additionally for you. One, we have windows, natural light in Sovereign Hope Church for the first time since, like, 1997. So the outside exists, and we are happy for it. Um, Also, we uh, are... Uh, to a point we're almost done with the women's restroom. We've just got some uh, final pieces that need to be made. Um, the stalls are actually in. We just need all the closures and things like that. And then, guys, you don't have to go pee outside anymore. You come inside um, like a good boy. Uh, but that means that uh, we're waiting on some final transitions in, from the city. And then when that's done, what we're going to turn to is trying to get some space set up for our twos and threes and hopefully fours and fives if we could get enough. And so hopefully we'll have uh, something within the next month or two, at least for twos and threes, and we'll go on from there. But that also means we'll need help. So there'll be some more labor days and things like that uh, moving forward. So um, with that said, let me pray for us once more and we'll dive into the text Paul just read for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that as we look at stories that happened 2,000 years ago, we know that you still speak. Um, Hebrews makes it clear um, that you continue to speak through those who, even though they are dead, um, not only bear witness to us in history, but your Holy Spirit so indwells your word uh, that it is the very word of God. So we ask today that as we examine this, that you draw near to us that you keep the promise you made and we remember this Advent season to draw near to those who draw near to you through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name, amen. So we're three weeks into our series in the book of Luke and we are begun last week a story which is exclusive to Luke's gospel and that's the story of God beginning to move again by sending an angel to an old priest with a barren wife of a restless people to announce good news. Last week, we looked at the context of this, which Paul so kindly included in our scripture reading today. We looked at the context into which the gospel came, and this week we're looking at the content of the first gospel message in the book of Luke. Today, the angel Gabriel is going to gospel to us. He's going to announce good news to those who would hear it. Now, the good news which Gabriel's going to share today is not the typical good news we would think about if we just think about the word, the gospel. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement. In fact, the main actor in this human passage is not even Jesus of Nazareth. It's his cousin, John the Baptist. Yet it's this prophecy and the subsequent conception of John the Baptist to the old man Zechariah with his barren wife that fills them and many others with great joy. If you've ever been to a play or to an opera, you've encountered maybe even some musicals um, that you, you know, don't go to, you watch on Netflix, it's not as cool. Um, you've noticed something called an overture. What the overture is, it's this song that begins at the very beginning, sometimes before even the first actor comes onto the stage, and the overture plays an important role as the orchestra begins to familiarize the audience 
with key themes and melodies that are going to return throughout the rest of the play. The role of the overture is to give you an ear for key sounds and key tunes that are going to be important. And it's not this blatant mashup of different songs that are coming in, but instead we learn to listen to chords and key changes so that when we encounter those later on, we say, aha, I've heard this before. I saw it. I heard it in the overture. And the story and message of Gabriel, Zachariah, and Elizabeth, which we see today, it forms the overture of the book of Luke and his good news that he wants to make us certain of. What God began to do in the lives and hearts of people this morning not only reaches all the way back with key tunes we've heard through all the Old Testament promises, but it actually is going to create for us melodies that we hear all throughout the rest of Luke's gospel and the New Testament as a whole. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we see the role of John the Baptist and the response of his parents. What we're going to see today are four melodies of the gospel that are included in this text. Four ideas that Luke is consistently going to bring back and develop in his book, which should shape not only how we read the book of Luke, but it should shape your expectations of the gospel and following Jesus in your own life. And those melodies are going to be joy, conversion, unbelief, and mercy. And we'll begin today by reading our first scene, which takes place inside the temple in Luke 1, verses 8 through 17. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here we see Zechariah. We talked about the anticipation last week, 400 years of silence of God not speaking. And Zechariah goes into the temple and God begins to speak anew. He picks up his discourse, his promise with his people and Zechariah is gripped with fear. Zechariah here encountered an angel who merely reflected the glory of God, and he was terrified. And when we encounter the majesty of the triune God of Scripture, we would be terrified and we will be terrified as well if that God does not also reach out to comfort us and to calm our own fears, which is what the angel did. Do not be afraid for your prayer has been answered. 
Do not fear. And I imagine the angel knew this response because he had seen this marvelous compassion modeled by God throughout all eternity of a God who speaks comfort to those who encounter his glory. Remember how David speaks of the Lord in Psalm 103, verses 13 through 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And here as we get into the gospel, which is the only place we see God clearly, when we get into the gospel, we are going to encounter this wonderful, marvelous, radiant God who is one God in three persons, the Lord who created the universe, the Lord who is ablaze with holy righteousness. When you hear his gospel proclaimed, he knows you. He knows your initial response to his greatness. And it is in his joy to comfort you in the midst of that. You see, the gospel and knowing the Lord through Jesus Christ doesn't promise the absence of fear, but what it does promise is a God who shows compassion and kindness to those who fear him in faith. You see, it's not the absence of fear, but the presence of faith, which is the greatest comfort of the believer in this world. And it's in light of the character of this God that we see our first melody of the gospel of Luke. And that is joy. Look again at Luke 1, 13 and 14. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. and Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. I'm a sports fan, and so I love sappy sports moments. And I saw a young boy with cancer who showed up to uh, a, a, an event, and he went to see his favorite sports star. And he noticed as people started to leave, that this star started to leave, and he began to cry. But then... The athlete noticed him and he turned towards him and he went to him. And what came over the face of that boy and his family was nothing short of astounding joy. We all have moments in our life where whether we are noticed by the person who we have a crush on or our boss notices our work, that whatever experience we have is overcome by joy. And in the gospel, where you are noticed by the king of kings, whatever your experience was prior to that, it gives way to joy. For God has looked upon you. God has noticed you. There is one proper response to being known by a God like this. And that is joy. To be heard and known by a God as good as this is to turn seasons of sorrow and apathy into joy. When you understand who it is who notices you and how low that Savior stoops to take your hand, all you're left with is joy. 
And here, Zechariah's prayer has been heard. It was being answered. God had noticed him. And what's interesting here is we don't know precisely what Zechariah's prayer was. Although the Greek says it was a singular prayer. His prayer had been answered. Some think his prayer was for the redemption of Israel, the coming of God's kingdom, that all of God's faithful remnant were hoping for. And that makes sense because those are the kind of prayers that a priest like Zechariah, who goes to burn incense in the holy place like Zechariah did, would typically offer. They would offer prayers for the people. In fact, they wore an ephod, which was basically a breastplate. And on that breastplate, the priests would have engraved on it the 12 tribes of Israel. So the physical weight that these priests would carry on their chest into the presence of God was the weight of all the people of Israel. And yet the announcement that the angel gives is the good news of the birth of a son to the barren household of Zechariah and Elizabeth. A miraculous conception because not only is she barren, but as we saw earlier, as Zechariah reminds us today, they're old as dirt. They're advanced in years. And so, but if Zechariah's prayer was for the child, then it's kind of surprising that he would act as kind of unbelieving as he does later on in this text. And so I think that perhaps by answering the singular prayer Zechariah offered, God answered it in a way which far exceeded all of his desires. Both the prayer he offered at the altar and the deep desire of his heart. You see, God wasn't just going to open a womb, but he was going to answer Israel's longings. God wasn't simply going to answer Israel's longings for a savior. He was going to care for this afflicted Israelite family. God's promises are always bigger than our petitions. And here we see this tied together because the joy and rejoicing which Zechariah and Elizabeth were to have at this wonderful conception was to be shared with the many. Many will rejoice at the birth of this child. Whatever God was doing in the lives of these two faithful believers was not only going to bring them personal joy, but there was going to be an overflowing corporate joy which would follow. When God works, he brings joy and joy abounding. Now, I want to give a brief aside here because all of us have different experiences. I personally am more prone to melancholy. My daughter is more personally prone to excitement. And so when we talk about this, we, we can often guilt ourselves into feeling like, well, we don't have joy and therefore we're not Christian and the world is ending and it's just Monday. You know, we, there's a lot left to do still. But it's important to see here that this joy wasn't an, an immediate thing, was it? In fact, if we track Zachariah's emotions, he's fearful, he becomes doubtful. For a season, he's going to be afflicted. But then eventually, by the end of the story of Zechariah, he is jubilant, opening his mouth in prophetic joy. The promise of God's joy is not the absence of other difficult emotions but it is the certainty that joy will be our final note and lasting privilege for those who come to God through Jesus Christ. And Luke wants you to see the joy of following Jesus. 
of the four accounts of the gospel. No one talks about joy and rejoicing more than Luke. And in fact, in verse 14, which we see here, and verse 44, which we'll look at next week, Luke uses a word which no other gospel writer uses to express an exultant joy. In fact, it's a word that carries with it the tone of like a piercing exclamation. My youngest daughter turns two later this week, and she has mastered piercing exclamations of joy. There are times where the shrillest sounds come out of her little body, and it's not because she wants to be annoying. It is because she is so overcome with happiness that all she can do is shatter windows and scream. When you think of what God has promised you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what emotion do you ascribe to it? When you think of following Jesus, do you think of joy? Do you think of screeching like a jubilant two-year-old who just got to watch Coco Melon? Because if you don't think of joy in your life of following Jesus, it is my hope, and it's actually Luke's design, that in seeing the story of Jesus, that God's joy sneaks up on you that you realize the delight of loving a God as good as this. But to those who feel that joy is hard to come by, we must also consider the other melodies of the gospel in this text. Because the joy which people have in this text is not merely connected to something superficial. It's not merely the bowl of ice cream being presented to you. The joy in this text that Elizabeth and Zachariah have, the joy that many others will rejoice in, is connected to the promise of God. Why will these people be joyful? Because of the role this child named John will play in bringing God's promised salvation. Read with me verses 14 and 17. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so here we see the reason for joy. And this is our second melody this morning. And this is the joy of conversion. John the Baptist would come as a messenger of both the need and God's promise to bring conversion, turning our hearts to the Lord our God. The joy we have in the gospel is because of the turning of our hearts towards the gospel. Many Christians uh, think of John the Baptist kind of in the same way we'll see the Pharisees do in the book of Luke. And that is that they know he came and fulfills some special role, uh, but for the most part, he's this weird guy who eats bugs and is hairy and we're not quite sure what to do with him and we're just hoping to get out of Luke chapter one alive. But we shouldn't neglect the significance John the Baptist plays in the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. Well, it's not a mistake here that part of the reason there will be joy, part of the reason there'll be rejoicing is because this baby, this John will be great 
before the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself says later on in the book of Luke that among those born of men, none are greater than John the Baptist. And we see in this text that he will be great for two reasons. One has to do with his personal distinction. The other has to do with his ministerial distinction. First, John himself was distinct. He was not to take alcohol, but instead he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his womb. This is distinct. God's people were not holistically prohibited from drinking alcohol. And there were specific people who fulfilled specific roles or took specific vows who would abstain from them. And John the Baptist here is being told that he would abstain from that, that he would not participate in that. And instead, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Historically, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon God's prophets or God's leaders, his judges or his kings, to fulfill specific tasks. It was kind of like this spiritual energy drink where everyone knew they could go and worship God, but when God wanted to get something done, he would move in a mighty way and the Holy Spirit would come upon someone until they accomplished what God wanted them to accomplish. And then that specific special indwelling would remove for a season. And John here is gonna have this Holy Spirit from conception. Jesus, when he is born, he's gonna have the Holy Spirit himself in a distinct way even greater than that of John. But it's also important to remember that for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, those who repent from their sin and believe the gospel, you are filled with the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as an encourager, as an empowerer, the very moment you are saved. The Holy Spirit is not simply a promise for God's special. The Holy Spirit is God's promise to all who come to him. What makes John unique is not that he gets the Holy Spirit. That is the wonderful privilege for all who are children of God. What makes John unique is that he's filled with it from his conception. And that's because the task John was about to play was unique in the history of God's prophets. Because he was not only going to tell people of the coming of God's salvation, he was actually going to see it. He was going to baptize the Messiah He was not going to be under the control of alcohol, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. He embodied what Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says to not be filled with wine, to not be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This John, his life was to be distinct. But his distinction was also for a distinct purpose. John's ministry, his prophetic role, was not simply to proclaim, but also to prepare a distinct people. Look again at verses 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was an Old Testament prophet. And he would come, and this is really important to understand because in talking about Elijah, it was kind of like talking about the Michael Jordan of prophets. He was, he was the big guy. He was the one who everyone wanted to see come back again. 
And this is important last week, what Gabriel says, because if you were here last week, you remember the very last prophecy that was given in the Old Testament. The last prophecy before God turned off the spout of the prophets for 400 years. And so when we read this, we might read it as nothing to bat our eyes at in significance. But for Zechariah in hearing this, this was like fireworks going off in the midst of the temple. Because remember what we read last week in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, where God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The forerunner to God's day of salvation where God humbles the wicked and exalts the righteous, where God heals the hearts of those who are wounded, is that Elijah would come. And here, here is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And part of what made Elijah distinct and contributed to his superhero status was that he served in kind of the peak of Israel's idolatry, of them worshiping other gods, And there was this like too good to be true event on Mount Carmel where Elijah went to go duel with 450 prophets of the false god Baal. And he did this in front of all of Israel. He was going to put on a show. He was going to ask God to do a wonderful miracle in the midst of both pagans and God's people. But we actually see his goal. Why did he do this? Why did he summon all? Why was God about to work a miracle? Read with me in 1 Kings 18, verses 36 through 39. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known to you this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and they licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What was the role of Elijah? Where we look back and we say Michael Jordan was a basketball player. When the Jew looks back, Elijah was a heart turner. Elijah came to turn people's hearts back to God. And what was the role of this John who came in the spirit and power of Elijah in verse 16? To turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. Just as Elijah did, here is God's new prophet, the one who came to convert people from one way of life to another. And how would he play this converting role? It says in verse 17 that he would go before him. So who is the him? We have to put on our grammar hats here for a little bit. Well, the antecedent, right? I had to look that up. That's what it is. The antecedent is in verse 16. And that is the Lord. 
John the Baptist is going to play his role of heart turning and converting by going before the Lord. That is, he was to prepare people for Jesus by going before Jesus and proclaiming what conversion to Jesus would look like. John the Baptist was a minister, a herald, a prophet of the gospel. He didn't convert anyone. He didn't save anyone. Why? Because he wasn't the Messiah. He was just the forerunner to the Messiah. But his job was to make a people prepared so that when the Lord came in the person of Jesus Christ, that the people would be prepared and know exactly what to do in their response. You see, just as ministers of the gospel do today, we point people and prepare people to what a right response to the Lord's salvation looks like. What does it take to rightly come to Jesus? What does a prepared heart looks like, look like? It looks like turning to God. You see, mere confession doesn't require a heart change. But conversion does. Christian confession, by nature, includes Christian conversion. Coming to Jesus is not simply an affirmation of the mouth or merely an agreement of the mind. Coming to Jesus is a turning of your whole heart to God. John was coming to a people who knew the Old Testament law. Remember, here they are, in the temple, where they are observing what God has given to them, and they are offering prayers, and they've kept the feasts, but the sign and symbol of this good news is not merely an external conversion, but a conversion from the heart. You cannot come to Jesus without leading with your heart. We come to Jesus by turning our hearts to Jesus. And the rest of our life follows. But the hard thing is, we can tell when our feet are turned because we could look and see them. We can tell when our hands are turned because we could look and see them. How can we tell if our hearts are turned? Well, the angel here helps us out by showing us what a turned heart looks like. Gabriel says it looks like two things. A heart which is turned towards God is a heart which is turned towards others and a heart which is turned towards obedience. Look back at Luke 1, verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What does it look like to be a people prepared? What does it look like to be converted? It looks like relational reconciliation towards each other Fathers turning to children, children turning towards fathers. That's the promise of Malachi 4. But it also looks like obedient reconciliation towards God, turning away from the disobedience of the world to the obedience of the righteous. To turn with our hearts means that the whole body will follow. And we see this time and time again in the Gospel of Luke, that the people who are turned to the Lord in obedience, the people who are trying to honor God from the heart, are the people who are constantly turning towards others. And this brief verse here, Luke 1.17, is a verse that should make both sides of the political aisle uncomfortable today. 
Because we see on one hand the expectation that those whose hearts are turned to the Lord, those whose hearts have been smitten by the gospel to joyfully turn are those who turn in costly ways to each other. And yet, if we want to be those who costly who, who in costly ways turn towards each other, we must also be those who turn away from disobedience towards obedience, which means if we want to love those around us in the world as God would call us, it requires us to not only love them, but to love the Lord our God, to obey him and to worship him alone. The gospel calls us to others and to obey the Lord. So right now, as you think of yourself, John's goal, which we now see in scripture, was to make a people prepared. Where do these markers of a prepared conversion show up in your life? Where are you loving others and obeying the Lord? Where is generosity and holiness showing up in your life? Now you might look at this and say, that's not really something I want to turn my heart towards. That sounds like more work. But this is the substance of the joy. This is the joy of following Jesus from our heart. And we have something even better is we've seen the whole scope of scripture. And so when it comes to these acts of love and obedience, we also are empowered through the Holy Spirit to do these things. We are not called to white knuckle deadlift our way into holiness and love, but God gives us the Holy Spirit, which helps us do this. Consider what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians verses 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you. So what is Paul praying for his church? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ the power of the gospel allows us to glorify God and his wisdom by empowering us to love others and to obey God. The message of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is a message of conversion. It converts us not just on our lips or in our mind, but it converts us to a new life of love and obedience in Jesus Christ. But as good as the joy of conversion seems... There's a third melody buried in this text. And we see this in Zechariah's response in verses 18 through 22. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering about his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. So here we see the third melody 
of the gospel in the book of Luke, and that is that of unbelief. Everywhere the gospel is preached in the book of Luke, there are all sorts of responses of unbelief. There are some who believe, and there are some who don't. And the lines are blurred even more because sometimes it's obviously the bad guys who don't believe. You know, when Luke gives you the subtle clue, like they went and planned Jesus's murder. Those are the bad guys. We'll pick up on those points. That's what unbelief looks like. But sometimes it's people who just don't have a lot of clarity on who Jesus is, and yet they're following him and they're listening to him. And sometimes it's even the overtly good guys, the disciples themselves, who are wrestling to believe what Jesus is saying. But what we see in this text are two issues which frame our understanding of both faith and doubt. And the first is that when the gospel comes into our lives, it comes as an authority into our lives. Here we have Zechariah, who is witnessing something miraculous, something which hasn't happened in 400 years. He is shaking with fear. He is viewing the angel of the Lord in all of his radiant glory, and he is speaking to him. And you know what his response is? To fact check it. (laughs) Yeah, but how do I know this is for real? How do I know this is gonna happen? And then I love Gabriel's response. He like looks around, you can imagine, Do do you see what I see in here, Zechariah? I am Gabriel. I'm an angel who wasn't here moments ago and just popped up. I serve in the presence of God. I was sent to give you this message. The message of the gospel comes to us with divine authority where it is our fault if we do not believe it. To not heed this message, to not believe it, is to think we can have a knowledge more certain than the knowledge which God himself gives us in the gospel. It is to reveal in our hearts the deafness and obtuseness of our sinful hearts. And that means a rejection of this gospel demands and deserves punishment. And we see that in this text. The irony is that Zechariah wants a sign. If you guys said, I want a sign, you say, Tyler, I'm just waiting to see what God would do. And I say, why don't you just go home and pray about it? And you went home and you prayed about it. And then angel appears and starts speaking to you. Who would come out and just say, Tyler, I'm really looking for a sign. I just don't know what God wants from me. But Zechariah sees all of this and wants a sign. And so he gets one. Gabriel says, fine, your sign is you can't talk anymore. The same tongue that is meant to deliver us and confess will be stilled until this happens. And this theme of signs and certainty comes up quite frequently in the book of Luke. People are demanding signs that Jesus is the Messiah, despite the fact that Jesus is raising people from the dead. And Jesus' message to them is that he is the sign that there will be no greater sign of God's truth and his power to save apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you ever wondered, and you're wrestling with doubt and unbelief, if God would give you a sign, Scripture does, and it gives us two. 
It's either the cross of Jesus Christ or your own condemnation at the end of all things. One of them is offered to you in this life, the other only at the next, but in the end of the story, everyone believes. Either in coming to faith through the cross of Jesus Christ or in standing condemned in your own rejection of this Lord for all eternity, our hope as sovereign hope is that you would come and see the sign of the cross that your sins, though they are many, though you are covered in crimson, Christ has come to wash you whiter than snow, that he has taken the pain of unbelief and he has borne it on the cross, but he has rose again so that you too might have newness of life. For those who wrestle with faith and doubt, it is this sign, the sign of Jesus Christ, the sign of God's promise being heralded by John the Baptist and then to Zechariah, his father, which makes sense of our own experience. That's because the gospel not only comes as an authority, but the gospel actually comes as a healing. We all wrestle with sin and with unbelief because all sin is ultimately unbelief. All of the elders in this room, the most holy Christian you've ever had, if they have ever sinned at one point in their life, they have doubted God's goodness and chosen to not believe him. But it's only those who wrestle in light of the cross who are able to put their unbelief to death day by day. You see, what this passage does is before Jesus even shows up on the scene, we see the greatest problem Jesus came to solve because you might think that if you were struggling with barrenness, and you might say, well, if God could cause me to conceive, then I would believe his goodness. You might think that if you were actually able to find the satisfaction you wanted, if your love interest finally noticed you, if the professor finally gave you the award, if you finally got the job you wanted, if you finally purchased that house in the absorbent Missoula market, if you finally had the child, if you finally climbed the right mountain peak, then you would believe that God is good. But here in the story of Zechariah, it's proof that our greatest problem in life is not our external circumstances. The barrenness was removed but the unbelief remained. But here, under the firm and gentle touch of the Lord's messenger, unbelief was being overcome. Jesus came so we could continually wage war against our unbelief by seeing God faithful, even when his faithfulness seems difficult. There are two kinds of people at the end of the story in the book of Luke. Well, there's three. There's those who believe in Jesus, those who don't believe in Jesus, and there's Jesus. Those are the three categories. You're not Jesus, so let's assess the other two. And yet of those two people groups, unbelief seems to permeate both. But the difference is, there are those who despite their seasons of sorrow and wrestling and doubt, they continue to believe they wrestle in the arms of faith even when it seems like foolishness to their flesh and they are delivered. One of my favorite stories 
in the book of Luke, and it's one that I think Stephen will share with us in a couple weeks, is where we see the end of Zechariah's story. Where at the end of all of this, his lips are finally opened. And if you are someone who wrestles with unbelief in seasons of doubt, I can't wait for Zechariah to encourage you by showing that all of those who endure in faith will ultimately rejoice at the end of it. You see, the gospel doesn't create unbelief in our hearts. It's not that we encounter this good news and it causes us to doubt God's goodness. The unbelief already exists and it's only the gospel which can overcome it. And our last melody today is encountered in our concluding verses this morning. Verses 23 through 25. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his house And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So here we see our final melody in the Gospel of Luke, and that is the melody of mercy. God in his mercy didn't just cause Elizabeth to conceive But in so doing, he took away her reproach from among men. And that's really important because what we saw last week is there's this stigma in culture. It did not come from God. God constantly used barren women in his history in the Old Testament. But culturally, it was assumed that if you didn't have a child, that God was displeased with you. There's some innate failing in your life that you were able to conceal from others. But God saw clearly. And so Elizabeth might have thought that despite her faithfulness, that she was constantly plagued with the questioning in her heart of if she was good enough, if she was faithful enough, if she was righteous enough. But when she conceived, that reproach and that paranoia was finally removed. And what is astounding in this text is that despite the removal of this reproach, she stayed hidden. Now, if this were you, And the whole world were saying, there's something wrong with you. You're sinning. You're not as good as you could be. And you finally have proof that you're just as good as you thought you were. What would you do? We would probably post it on Facebook, paint our cars, like wear a chicken suit and run through the the crowd to get noticed for it. (laughs) Wouldn't you, if you were Elizabeth, start going out to everybody and be like, see this bump? (laughs) That was weird. I'm so sorry I did that. But she hid herself. Why is that? I think it's because she had such a profound sense of the Lord's mercy to her that she did not need to be vindicated by anyone else. She finally knew that God was pleased with her. And she didn't need to receive that praise from men, but instead she sat and rejoiced in what? That the Lord had looked upon me. That God had mercy on her and removed her reproach through the conception of her son. And I think there's a little bit of prophetic foreshadowing here. Because Elizabeth's reproach was removed with this conception but it's because of this child, John the Baptist, that the way would be proclaimed 
for Jesus the Messiah to come. And Jesus the Messiah, when he died on the cross, would strip the reproach of guilt, shame, and condemnation from all who come to him in faith. You see, the reproach that Elizabeth had removed from her is nothing compared to the reproach that Jesus removes from us who come to him. The gospel is for those who constantly feel full, sinful, shameful, prideful, and doubtful. The gospel is for those who always feel that they have less, that they're helpless, worthless, and hopeless. But it's time and time again in the gospel of Luke where Jesus comes to those who are full and those who have less and he gives them mercy when they come to him in faith. Where the gospel is believed, the shackles of reproach fall to the ground and you know where you stand before the God of the world. When God moves, when people believe, burdens are lifted. And ironically enough, the sins of the father... (laughs) It's John, later on in the book of Luke, who wrestles with doubt, just as his father did. John's in prison, Jesus is out there, and he sends his disciples to Jesus to say like, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is this really who I was preparing the way for? Because it doesn't look like it. I'm in prison, this isn't how the story's supposed to go. But look at how Jesus responds to John's disciples and what he points to in Luke 7, verse 22. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. John's message, the very message he needed to be reminded of later in life is the message of mercy at the hands of Jesus. That when God looks upon you in Jesus Christ, he gives you mercy. He lifts your reproach and fills you with joy. And so today, may you be one who says in your faith in Jesus that the Lord has looked upon me. And may our response be together to turn our hearts and rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ministry. We thank you that in coming in Jesus Christ, you kept every promise you made in the Old Testament so we know that you will keep every promise you've made to us. Lord, we ask that our own hearts are prepared not only to receive the gospel in salvation, but to walk out that salvation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, the scope of our expectations can bounce all over the place, but the end of all things is the God who's come to tie our hearts and to bind our joy to the God who removes our reproach in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name, amen.